The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We've been inviting you for the couple, last couple weeks into this really important conversation that our church has been having. Obviously, that's that conversation about the multiplication of our Sunday morning services from one to two, and that conversation becomes a tangible reality next Sunday. And we don't want that conversation actually to ever end. I mean, we're not going to continue this series for, you know, indefinitely. Uh, it ends today, but we, we want to keep talking about what God's called us to as a church and how we live that out. And we, the circumstances may change. Uh, how that is lived out in the life of our church may change, but the, our callings, our goals as a church, we pray, will never change. Our, our calling to magnify God's glory, live as His people, and engage in His mission. Um, this series, we've been putting it another way, to connect people to God, to connect people to one another, and to connect people to their communities by way of faithful witness. And so today is part three, connecting people to their communities by way of faithful witness. And we're going we're gonna to end this uh, in a fitting way as we talk about um, what God has called us to as people that live, as his people on mission, engaging, participating in what he is doing, not only in our church, but in the world around us. And so let's read um, this passage in Luke chapter 22. Uh, just a few verses, starting in verse 24. Here, Jesus is, uh, it's the night uh, before his crucifixion. He is um, having, enjoying the Passover meal with his disciples. Uh, it's what we know as the Last Supper and uh, conversations that are happening around that table. So, chapter 22, starting in, in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. This is God's word. For us, uh, when we're talking about connecting people to their communities, uh, we're talking specifically about our core conviction that we are to be a community on mission. We are to be a community of people who have a faithful witness to to our environments around us, whether that's our our very own families, uh, even within our church, our communities, our workplaces, wherever God has planted us. We want to be a faithful witness in that environment, and we have to be so careful to to. Uh, describe whenever we describe like what it means to be a follower of Jesus because we, we have to be careful not to build our identity on doing stuff uh, there's a lot of things that Christians are called to do and we've been talking about those things even even this series we've been talking about um, a Christian who who engages in community with others in, in, in relationship we've been talking about the Christian who who serves and gives and shares their faith uh, but we want to be careful not to be Christians that that just go to church or just share our life with others or read our Bible or share our faith because we ought to um, because those things don't make us a Christian. We are not made a Christian because we do these things and uh, if we stop doing those things we don't stop being Christians. Rather these things that we do are an overflow of who we, who we are. Uh, they're an expression of our identity. And we're so conditioned as a culture to build our identity on what we do and what we accomplish that this may seem counterintuitive. It may seem counter-instinctive um, to live this way. I, I fall into this trap in, in another way. I see this error sometimes relating with my, 
uh, my children? Uh, do I, I, I ask myself, do I tell them I love them only when they are behaving well? I ask myself, do I, do I, tell them I'm, do I sit down and tell them I'm, I'm proud of them only when they do something really awesome? Often I find myself stringing two phrases together, uh, a compliment and an affirmation. Uh, for instance, I say things like, you did such a good job, I'm so proud of you. Right? So the compliment, you, you did such a good job, and the affirmation, I'm so proud of you. You're so beautiful, I love you so very much. Thank you for saying that you're sorry, you can sleep inside tonight. You know, things like that. The, the, uh, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's getting cooler at night, it's fun, you know. The compliment and the affirmation, how often do you do that? Even if you don't have children, I mean, think about how you're, we're so conditioned to affirm behavior and, and affirm our love and affirmation and favor based on the behavior that we see. Uh, they should also hear, you know, those things are wonderful, right? But they should also hear, you, you really need a do-over today. You really, today was a hard day. But I am still proud to be your dad. And I still love you very much. And that has not changed in the slightest. They need to hear those things as well. But do you see how we're so conditioned to tie, uh, you know, compliments with our affirmation? We look at the behavior and we reaffirm that. And so when we look about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's so easy to think about being a good Christian means being, doing these good things, but we have to be careful with that. It's very possible, even likely, uh, how we treat people, uh, even unknowingly, uh, that we are conditioning them to believe that our love and affection and favor is tied to their behavior and accomplishments. And I don't want you to feel that way as a follower of Jesus. I don't want you to feel that, that God's love for you is tied to your accomplishment as a Christian or his favor of you to be tied to what you do as a follower of Jesus because it is not tied to that. So we, when we look at what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus, we must not build our identity on, on our character, our record, and our behavior. Rather, we, what we do flows out of who we believe we really are. We are not loved because we are good. Rather, we are loved, and out of a deep indwelling and understanding of that love that God has poured out on us, we do good things. In response, we do good things because that life and that love, that grace and mercy that's been poured out to us fills our hearts, and, we, and it overflows into a life that is pleasing to God. And so what I hope to do this morning is, is not so, so, so much speak about the, the why or the what or the how of, of being a faithful witness. You know, we just spent... Uh, it seems like the last like five months talking about this as a church. We went through the book of Acts. We spent 12 weeks talking specifically about how to live as a faithful witness. We spent the whole summer in our summer life group talking specifically about how to uh, live out uh, good works to the material poor and marginalized in our communities. And so today I, I don't want to spend much time on that. Uh, what I do want to spend time on is talking about how a Christian should relate to their culture. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about connecting people to God and then connecting people to one another. And I want to talk about how we relate to people around us, how we relate to the community around us, and, and, and mostly the community around us that does not know or love Jesus, our city, our workplaces, things like that. So connecting to our community means looking beyond ourselves. That's what this passage is going to talk about first. First, a subtle rebuke. Let's get into this passage. First, a subtle rebuke from Jesus to his disciples. Uh, they're arguing, 
about who will be the greatest, uh, and Jesus offers a gentle and subtle rebuke. Do you see the tone in this? It's as if to ask, as he overhears them arguing about who will be the greatest when, when Jesus ushers in his kingdom, of which they will be a part, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. As if Jesus, he kind of steps in, he says, you know who else is obsessed with greatness? Those who are much more concerned with, how, with looking good than doing good. When Jesus says the, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, they're, they're, and they're called benefactors, Jesus is saying uh, people in the world with leadership and authority and power exercise uh, greatness and power uh, really in a way to benefit themselves. Uh, they, they see people who might be in need, and, and they, they offer need, and they, and they desire to help people, but only to the extent that it serves them. And that's how the world exercises greatness. If you look at the preceding passage, I referenced it just briefly. It's, it's, the, it's the Passover meal. They're celebrating the meal together. And Luke is so purposeful in how he orders his story and retelling of this narrative of what happened. And the Passover meal was this festival that took place every single year uh, to remind God's people of, of what he did for them and, and how he rescued them from death by his grace. And at this meal, uh, people were supposed to look to the past and be reminded of God's love and grace and favor and mercy. But here at this meal, Jesus doesn't look to the past. He actually tells them about the future. He talks to them how, how his his life is going to unfold and how his death is going to unfold. And he's telling them this story. He says, my blood, my, my body will be broken, my blood will be poured out, and all of this is to secure for you the promise of God's love for you, forgiveness of sin, relationship, salvation. He says, I will suffer for you in order to accomplish all that God desires for you that you cannot accomplish on your own. It's not a matter of your record and your greatness, but I will go and die for you. And that death will be the basis of your being able to receive God's love and favor. And then he says, I'll be taken from you, but I'm going to come back. And when I do, we will, we will be in God's kingdom and we will feast at a table much greater than this one. And we will feast forever. And so he's telling them this great story of God's love for them and favor for them, not based on anything that they would do. And imagine this. Right when he's, he's done with his, he puts a period on that sentence, the disciples lean into one another and say, I wonder which one of us is going to be the best of all. <laughs> Jesus just got done telling this wonderful story of grace, a failure of their own character and record. He's saying, but I am going to die for you. And, and just as quickly as he finishes, here they are wondering who's going to be the most awesome in that new kingdom founded by God's grace. If Jesus had something to hit him with, I think he would have. A rolled up newspaper or something. Their questioning is a failure, a failure to grasp the gospel. Uh, Self-justification is always impossible for us. This is this gospel failure that they, that they are experiencing. Self-justification is always impossible. We can't save ourselves. No amount of, of personal accomplishment or greatness can merit God's love or acceptance. So it's foolish to, to talk about who deserves what. It's foolish to rank ourselves among other people and who is deserving and who's better and who's greater and who, who, who deserves to be in a better position as other people. The ancient world and even the modern world view success and power the same way. As we look at Jesus talking about how 
people in authority exercise their own authority in the world in the ancient East, it is so common to see those same things played out today. Those in power exercise power to bless people to the degree that those people will be able to, in turn, be useful to them, their reputation, or help them maintain their position of power. And Jesus says, and I want you to feel the weight of what he says next. He says, but not so with you. That's not how you're going to act. That's not how people who follow me are going to exercise their authority, their power, their greatness, their leadership. That's how the world does it. That's how our culture does it. But you're not going to do it that way. I don't want you to treat people how, how the world treats people. I, I'm giving you the kingdom. I'm giving you everything. And, and it's based on no effort of your own. So he's saying, I'm giving you a free gift. And it is the best thing you'll never be without. Uh, wanting, you'll never want anything else. You'll, you'll, it'll overflow in blessing to you. Your, and your status means nothing. Your degree... Uh, on the wall means nothing. Your wealth and accomplishments, they, they have cr- contributed absolutely nothing to the gift that I have given to you, the kingdom of God, which is yours. He says, that's, how not, that's not how people who follow me are going to act, because they don't have to. They don't have to fight for position. They don't have to uh, trample over others in order to get reward, because you are going to have it all as a gift. That's what the gospel creates. It's so counterintuitive. It's so radical to talk to people who are going to be leaders, leaders of of the kingdom. And he says, you don't need to fight for this. You don't need to talk about who's going to be great. You've been given everything. It's so different the way that we are trained to think and to feel. When you grasp, when your grasp of, of what God has done for you becomes the center of your life, it will cause you to look beyond yourself, mainly because you're deeply aware that its blessings have come to you beyond yourself. You're able to look beyond your own interests. You're able to look beyond yourself because you know that that grace that's come from you has come from the outside. It didn't come from within. It was never uh, your own doing in the first place. And so you're able to look to the needs of others. You're able to serve and to care for others. For a moment, just think about all the benefits of Christianity. Uh, most of the time when we think about all the good things about Christianity, uh, we think mostly about how those good things are about us. You know, we think, what are, the, what are some good blessings of being a Christian? You know, transformation, forgiveness of sins, renewal, growth, restoration, hope. When you think about the benefits of Christianity, how often do you think about how those are benefits for you individually? Now, don't get me wrong, those are benefits to us individually. But when we think about those benefits as just primarily about us, we've missed the broad scope of the gospel. It should not be so with followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus should not just look at the blessings of what Jesus did on the cross and think about how that changes our life. We ought to think about how those blessings will overflow into impacting the lives of people around us. These disciples were given great blessing, great privilege, great position in the kingdom of God, not for the further pursuit of of their own benefit, but the blessing of others. And so connecting to our community, it means looking beyond ourselves, because because our redemption has come from beyond ourselves. We've been given this great gift, 
And secondly, connecting to your community is an outward movement of love and service. What does this create when we realize that this is a gift? What does the gospel create in us? Well, it, it wells up within us and overflows into acts of love and compassion and service and sacrifice to others. Jesus uses a very simple but powerful figure of speech. He says, the greatest among you should become as the youngest. The leader among you like servants. What Jesus is after is, is not, he's not telling followers to, to forfeit and to give up and to pretend that they do not have privilege and gifts and abilities. But rather, he is, he's inviting them into adopting a theology of the cross. Um, and he knows that most people do not have a good theology of the cross, and maybe you don't as well. What's a theology of the cross? It's this. It's that it, is, it is the theology or the belief that God's ultimate communication of his power comes in weakness, not in strength. The way that God reveals to us his greatest display of power is not as a soldier, but as a humble servant who comes to die for us. The cross is where God says what seems like a loss is actually a gain. When we look to the cross, the theology of the cross, we look to the cross and we, say, we see failure in the world's eyes. We see weakness. We see uh, a person who is despised. That's why the crowds looked at him and mocked him and said, You're king? Well, then come off of that cross. What are they saying? To be great is to be one who who walks over everyone and gets to the top. To be great is to not lose out of, out of, uh, out of privilege and in life. To be wise is to, to speak eloquently rather than to be silent. When we look at the cross, we see everything turned upside down. A theology of the cross is, is, this, is believing that God's display of greatness and power is best seen in his not claiming those things, but rather giving it up and dying. Even death itself, and this is how radical it gets, even death itself, which should be the end, is not the end. Even death itself is glorious. The glory of the cross is that God came, became a man, and died and was buried. He was crucified and buried, and he, died. he was in the grave for for three days. And there's glory in that. There is triumph in that. Jesus knows the temptation of his disciples, and he knows our temptation as well. He knows what we struggle with. And that is to be people who, not, who don't, don't follow the theology of the cross, but, but follow something else. He knows, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. But we want to be people who, who live by a theology of glory. Um, not ones that follow the cross, but, you know, so, so what's your favorite Bible verse? You don't have to tell me. Uh, but I'm guessing it's not Luke 9.23, pick up your cross and follow me. I bet it's Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a bad verse. It's a wonderful verse. We need to understand what that means in the context of our life and of the whole Bible. If your favorite idea of God is that things will go well for you in this life, then you don't understand. You don't understand how he has communicated his power. Do you have a, thought, a good theology of the cross? Is your favorite verse, pick up your cross and follow me? Or is it something like, 
some rendition of, if you follow Jesus, good things are going to happen. They will. There is glory. God has promised glory for his followers. He has promised greatness. He has promised triumph. He has promised endless favor, but not in the way that you think he has. It may, it will not be complete for you in this life, and it may not come to you in great measure in this life. Those who were most faithful to Jesus died the youngest, were most persecuted, had the hardest life, and they were tempted to think, well, well then have you forgotten me? Where are your promises of greatness? And Jesus is saying, I want you to, I want you, you need to learn what it means to be great. You need to learn what it means to exercise greatness. You need to learn what it means to be a leader in my kingdom. You need to learn what it means to exercise your privilege in this world. We want to be great, successful, influential. We want to be remembered and admired by people around us. And God does promise glory, but not in the way that we imagine. If you seek glory, if you are glory hungry, if you want so badly for things to go so well for you in this life, then the weaknesses and flaws of others and yourself will only seem as roadblocks to your goals. And God wants you to know that those are not roadblocks to your goals. They are specifically ways that God is using to to make you more like Him, to know His strength, for His power is made perfect in weakness. What a strange verse. What a, what a hard thing to grasp in your life. That, that God's power is made perfect in my weakness? How is that possible? Because the world has conditioned us to believe that, that power is made perfect in power, in authority, in leadership, in winning while others lose. And it's okay if others lose as long as we win. And if I have to climb over people in order to win, then that's okay. Because God has destined me for greatness. We need to look at Jesus. We need to look at him and look at him on the cross. We need to look at his teachings. This is what the disciples are saying. They're saying, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And how is God going to defeat our enemies so that we can be the greatest? And Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? Become the youngest. You want to be a leader? Become a servant. Unless you you know this, then the problems of this world will only defeat you. If you have a a theology of glory only and and, and fail to understand what it means uh, that God's power is made perfect in weakness and he's called us to a theology of the cross as as Christ followers, then the problems of this world, as you look out on the world and the landscape of our culture and all that is bad, you will feel defeated. You will look at your own failures in your own life and how you have failed to live as God has called you to fail or how he's called you to live and you will be crushed by those things. You will hate yourself, and you will overcompensate that hate for yourself with a love for yourself. And you'll say, I'm going through a season where I'm just going to love myself. And that, too, is not where God has called us to go. Because I've spent my whole life hating myself, and God says, well, you shouldn't hate yourself. You are loved. You are loved by me. That means your failures don't defeat you. Your failures should not crush you. Your successes don't go to your head, and your failures don't go to your heart. Because it's not what you have done that makes you loved. It's what I've done for you. So we can fail 
and we still find favor with God. We can succeed, and we don't have to gloat and boast in those things. But if we seek the cross, if we seek Christ and his perspective on the world, which he is communicating to us here, then we will increasingly use our privilege, our power, our authority, our gifts for the lost, the last, and the least among us. We will see the blessing that we have been given and we will say, God, how can I serve? How can I love? How can I benefit? Because I have been given the kingdom. I have been given everything, the great reward and riches of heaven, and I did nothing to earn it. How can I use this to be a blessing to others around me? And we will look for it. We will look for people that are marginalized. We will look for people that are hurting. We will look at ministries in the church that are suffering and we say, how can I help? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Not because we're really good Christians, but because of the cross. There's power in weakness. There's glory in shame. There is wisdom in things that seem foolish. And that was Jesus' life. That was the cross. His resurrection proved all of that true. Jesus is telling his disciples to have a certain kind of, of posture and to take on a certain gesture or action. If you want to be great, let's get into these, this this figure of speech that he uses. If you want to be great, become like the youngest. It's a posture we are to have. Jesus isn't saying you have to be like little children, you have to act like children. He is telling us that we should have a certain posture among our communities, among non-Christians, among the world, or even a posture within the church. What's a posture? A posture is just your, your natural stance, the way that you stand. Not the way you stand in the mirror when you're getting ready. I mean, the way that you stand when someone takes a picture that you were not aware of, and you look at that picture, and you're like, is that what I look like? <laughs> you're slouched over. You're leaning against the wall. You look exhausted, fatigued. That's a posture. How, how do you stand and sit just when no one is watching? Your natural resting place. Well, we have a posture. We have a posture in front of the culture, in front of the world. There's a, there's a natural way that we, 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 a natural stance that we have. We'll get into that in just a bit, what some of those might be. But, but Jesus is saying that we should have a certain posture, and that posture actually creates gestures. It, it creates action. You see, if you have a really bad posture and you sit all day and you're, you sit slouched, slouched over like this, I mean, you're going to have back problems. You're going to have digestive problems. You're going to have blood flow problems. I mean, there's, you're going to have a lot of problems. So you're going to walk a certain way. I know people that have had hip surgery uh, later in their life, uh, and they learn to walk a certain way to compensate for the pain that they're feeling. And now their hip is perfect, and there is no uh, somatic pain. There's no pain in their body, but they still walk with that limp because that's how they learned to walk. We have learned how to treat people around us based on the posture we have and the actions we take with them. If you want to be a leader, be as one who serves. This is the gesture we're to have towards our culture. Bad posture over time results in bad actions. What would you say your current posture is to your community? Uh, let me put it another way. When you, when you see the world around you and you see all the mess, all the, all the things that are counter-Christian, all the things that are broken, all the things that are sad, what's your initial reaction? That's your posture. Is it one of condemnation? Is it one of like, you know what, those people need to get their act together. I'm so glad that I'm a Christian and I have a church so we can be protected from all the mess in the world. Uh, maybe that's your posture. Maybe you don't even know that. 
Maybe ask other people, maybe ask some friends, what's my posture? You look at the world and desire to be protected from, the po- from, from all that is messed up. Maybe you have a posture of critique, and so maybe there's not one of condemnation, but it's critique. You are so good at talking about how the world is so bad, but you always keep it at arm's length. You do nothing to interact with it or to make it better, but you're good at talking about what's wrong. Maybe you have a, a different kind of posture, and that's copying. So you, want to be, you don't want to be one that's condemning or critique all the time, so you become like the culture. And there's no distinguishable uh, way of speech or action or behavior or values that are different from the culture. You are just, you've assimilated into the culture. Those are postures, and they result in ways that we live and act. Jesus is simply telling his disciples and us, while there is so much to condemn and critique and to even copy in the culture, there's a constructive way forward, and my people are going to act differently. And it will require an understanding of what the Bible story is itself. It will require us to have a posture of a child and the gesture of a servant. What's the posture of a child? What does that mean? When he says, if you, if you are gr- those who are great should become like the youngest. The youngest means here, he's talking about the freshest, the newest. It's the rookie. He's talking about the rookie. The posture of one who is humble and unassuming. It's describing the kind of person... Uh, who acts like they just showed up even though they've been there the whole time. It's the person who is amazing at something and yet they act like they're learning still. The story of the Bible reminds us that even if we've accomplished great things, we still needed Jesus to die for us. So how great can we really be? Are you good at things? You still needed Jesus to die for your sins. So how good are you really? Jesus is saying to act like the youngest means even think of all the great things that you have and have done and accomplished. And those things are of great value to the kingdom. You don't want to reject those things. But have a posture as if you're not the greatest. Have the posture as if you just showed up with much to learn. Jesus wants us to see those in need and to approach those who are not Christians and have the posture with them as if we just became a Christian like two seconds ago. Do you remember, if you are a Christian with us today, do you remember the moment you believed? Do you remember when it became clear to you? Do you remember when you grasped the grace of God and you were so humbled? Your first response, I bet, was not condemnation and self-righteousness to others. Because you were so fresh of the grace of God, you were probably the most generous and caring and giving because you realized what you just came out of. You're like, I didn't know this like two seconds ago, and now I know this. I know what it's like to be you. There's something that happens with Christians over decades and over years where they forget what they have come out of, and they don't act like the freshest one. They don't act like the rookie. They act like the one who's got it all together and has a lot to teach everybody else. And if the world would be a better place if they just acted more like them. That's one who is not acting like the youngest. Jesus wants us to have a posture like the young one, like the fresh one, like the rookie. If you're great, you should not walk into a room and, people, and, 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 and let everybody know right away. Make it a surprise. If you are good at something, seriously, let people, keep them guessing. Have a posture of the youngest. Jesus' followers should be so unassuming that people should be surprised at how educated or a great, or uh, skilled in leadership, or intelligent, or uh, 
resourceful or creative or innovative, whatever gift you have, you should keep people guessing. It should be a surprise. Because the way that the world exercise authority is, look at all, look, here's my resume, look at all that I've done well, and you will do well to utilize me. Jesus would say, have you forgotten who you are? Paul reminds us he, in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you remember who you were when you were first chosen, when the, when the gospel first came to you? Not many were wise, not many were wealthy, not many were, were well-spoken or intelligent. You were, you, you were the foolish of the world. You were the, the, the despised of the world. Remember who you are. You are not that great in terms of your ability to access the favor of God. So keep them guessing. And what, that, what happens is there's then this gesture of a servant. The role of a Christian in the world is more than intellectual and more than philosophical. The Christians have, Christians have much more to offer than just telling people what they are to believe. It is purposeful activity. It's an active stewardship of our gifts, talents, and resources, not merely for personal consumption, but for the good of others. Jesus says, okay, now that you have this posture as the youngest, you're unassuming and humble, you come into the crowd, and, and people are guessing, like, wow, you seem like you're new at this, but you're actually really good. Now serve them with those gifts that you have. Jesus calls us to live in such a way that advantages others, even if it disadvantages ourselves, and that may be the most radical thing I'm telling you this morning. The world does not live like this, and it has never lived like this. Jesus is saying, not so much with you, not so much with followers of Jesus. I want you to live for the advantage of others, even if it disadvantages you. Well, when have you ever done that, Jesus? Tomorrow you'll see. Tomorrow you'll see. I'm going to die for my enemies. Here's what Andy Crouch uh, says of the Christian who serves from his book, Culture Making. He says, of those who serve, he says, they are acting in the image of one who spoke a world into being and stooped down to form creatures from the dust. They are creaturely creators, tending and shaping the world that original creator made. We're acting like Jesus himself. When we serve, we are acting like Jesus himself. We are showing the world who Jesus is and what he is like. Jesus shows us in this final point his very demonstration of this, of connecting your community is rooted in the way that God has moved toward us. Let's finish here. God's grace is the driving force of all change. God's grace indwelling in our hearts and taking deep root in our hearts is the driving force for our ability to serve others in love and sacrifice. Engaging in God's mission is not the result of a can-do attitude. He is not telling his disciples, now, I'm going to leave and you've got a lot of work to do. And so just buck up and, and remember you're Christians, remember who you are, and just do the right thing. But it's an inward, it is a result of an inward working of the gospel in our lives. To see our sin, to repent and exercise faith, and to engage in joyful acts of service and sacrifice. Nothing in the Christian life is an act of a can-do attitude. The grace of God taking deep root in our hearts is the fuel for living an outward-focused and sacrificial life. We want to connect people to God. We want to connect people to one another. 
and we want to connect people to their communities. We want the gospel to take such deep root in your heart that it overflows into looking beyond yourself and seeing who else is out there who has great need and how God has gifted you with not only his grace, but great gift and ability and privilege and, and, and intellect and resources, how you can use that to be a blessing to others. In the slightest way, we, we look at the dinner table here, the dinner table that Jesus is at, and we see what salvation costs. We see what salvation is. And I'm saying this in the very slightest way. Like, way. Let me boil it down to the most basic definition of salvation. Jesus' comment is an explanation, an explanation of the most simplest form of salvation. He says, we agree that I'm the leader, right? And they're like, yeah. Okay, so we believe, we agree that I'm the Son of God who has come down and um, all of the glory of, of heaven is mine. And I own it all because I created it all. We agree with that, right? And the disciples are like, yeah. And therefore, I should be, I'm, 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 I deserve the, the place of one reclining at the table, and you guys should be serving me, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we should be serving you. And, and we agree now that I'm not the one doing that, but I'm actually the one serving you. That's grace. That's salvation. That's what your salvation cost. Jesus wants you to hear that as well. He says, as long as we're talking about what you deserve as a Christian, can we talk about what I deserve as, as the creator of all things? I deserve to be king and the one served, but I am actually the one serving you so that you can have everything that I die for. What will save you? What will save you? Jesus is saying not being Jewish because God's salvation is not a matter of race, not being successful because God's salvation is not a matter of economics and accomplishments, not being nice because God's salvation is not a matter of personality, not being hardworking because God's salvation is not a matter of sheer grit. He's telling them all these things and he's telling you all these things as well. God's salvation is a matter of sheer grace. So stop talking about what you deserve. Stop talking about your rights. Stop talking about your privilege, but rather see the privilege and rights and benefits you have and act like Jesus. Laying down our lives for others. Serving others, you have absolutely nothing to lose because you've been given the kingdom. You have been given the kingdom. What will save you? The only way is for Jesus, who is great, to become small. Who is truly the leader to become the servant. Who is truly perfect to become our sin. Who is truly God to become dead. That's the only way salvation will come to you and me. Is for Jesus who is great to become small. God's salvation is a matter of grace. Out in the world, who are the leaders? The ones with the birth, best birth, uh, sorry, I keep saying birth, sorry, I don't think we're pregnant or anything. Uh, <laughs> who are the leaders in the world? It's the one who have the best work record. Uh, it's the ones who have the best resume and the ones who have proven to climb to the top. Who are the greatest in the world? The ones who defeat all the competition. It's the ones who don't lose. And Jesus says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. You want to be the greatest in my kingdom? Do you want to be a leader in my kingdom? 
It'll be given to the ones who have messed up the most, yet who have repented of their sins and rest in what I've done for them. You want to be great in my kingdom, it'll be the ones who lay down their own glory for the glory of God. If you attempt as a follower of Jesus to become a leader and great by defeating all the competition and having a great work ethic and work record, it will only be a stumbling block to enjoying the gospel in your life. And this can only be true because of the cross. And at first glance, it does not seem logical that salvation, which is by sheer grace, should move us to serve others. But it should. A desire to serve others arises from a heart touched by grace. A grace that allows us to walk into a room and not act like the most important person in that room, but as someone who just showed up. Someone who just arrived, who is ready to serve ready to, put to be put to work, ready to create, ready to bless, ready to sacrifice. I promise you will have opportunity to do this every single day. You'll have opportunity to have a posture and gesture like Jesus on the drive home today from church. You will have opportunity to serve your family as, one, as the youngest and as a servant immediately as you leave these, the walls of this church. You will have opportunity when you go into work tomorrow or Tuesday Uh, to, to be as a servant, to be as the youngest, to be humble and unassuming, to, be, to look for the burdens of others. I promise you will have opportunity, countless opportunities throughout your day to do that. It will be to your joy. It will be to God's glory as you take that posture and exercise that gesture. You'll have that opportunity now, not only as you serve others outside of the church, but even those within. When we talk about engaging in God's mission, we talk not only about uh, being a faithful witness to, to people who don't know Jesus, we talk about sharing the burden together as a church. We have that opportunity as we multiply from one service to two, where we have, we have opportunity to say, you know what? This maybe isn't an area that I feel, I, I, this is, you know, serving with the kids is, uh, I'm way too skilled for something like that, <laughs> right? Uh, this is way above my, you know, I, 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 I make too much, I'm way, do you have any idea who I am? <laughs> Are you too good uh, to serve, to pick up garbage? You may have done a lot, but Jesus still needed to die for you. How good can you really be? This posture of like, you know what, I've done great things in my life, but I'm going to act like I just showed up day one. I'm a rookie. Let me learn. Let me serve. Let me help. Whether we go from two services to 12 or one or nothing, this is what Jesus has called us to as a church, as his followers, to have this posture of humility and this readiness to serve. And I promise you have opportunity to do that. If you, need a, if you see a need uh, to help on one of the teams, Pray that God would give you that, that desire, that energy to do that. If you see need, consider yourself not just as a guest of the church, but as a host who doesn't walk by burdens and let somebody else fix it, but that you would walk by a burden and you would be a burden bearer. You would help pick that up. You would help serve. You would engage in that. No one, no one is too good because God is always better. Let's be that kind of people. As we finish up this series and we go now into what God has called us to do, we're excited about what he's doing in our church. We're excited what he's doing in our own lives. We want the gospel to grow in new and fresh ways in our hearts. It all starts with his grace. Let's pray.